0: Hey everyone, I uh, have a great interview for you all today. I am joined by Dimitri Lascaris. He is running to be the uh, Green Party of Canada leader. Dimitri, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, David. Pleasure to be here.
0: Now, this uh, so there's a Green Party leadership race going on, uh, obviously. Your uh, candidacy for this actually made me a lot more interested uh, in this race. I had known about uh, a bit of your activism before you had joined this race. I am a former, just putting out there, I'm a former uh, Green, party of uh, uh, Green Party of Canada candidate uh, back in 2015, and since then, I kind of lost, I don't know, a little faith with the party. I began to move to a little uh, more towards the NDP, but I'm curious to hear what motivated you to, to get into this race, and well, of course, we're going to you know, dive more into policy as well, but um, tell people about your background and what motivated you to, uh, to join this race.
1: So I am uh, born and raised in Ontario. Uh, I'm the son of uh, two immigrants who came over to Canada from Greece in the 50s. Uh, My parents had no high school education, uh, didn't really want to leave Greece, but uh, the country lay in ruins, not just because of the Second World War, but a civil war uh, that was largely triggered by American-British interference in Greek politics, Uh, something that's always informed my thinking, all of those experiences, and uh, I've never forgotten where I came from. Uh, I did have the opportunity after uh, emerging from law school at the University of Toronto with a lot of debt to go work on Wall Street. Uh, that was where I started my legal career in the New York offices of a big firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. I spent a little bit of time in their Paris office. That was an eye-opening experience for me, a soul-crushing one as well. I saw the ways in which our very well healed clients, especially Goldman Sachs, uh, are able to bend the political and legal system to their will. and I. When I was told to go back to New York City, I declined and came back to Canada. I became a class actions lawyer, and uh, I went to the other side, and represented, uh, you know, individuals, ordinary Canadians, and union pension funds in litigation against corporate Canada. So, what motivated me to enter this race? uh, You know, I've done a lot of other things like activism, which you mentioned. I've also been doing a lot of real uh, independent journalism for an organization called The Real News. But what motivated me to enter this race is that I think that the, the left is not really represented in Canada's parliament today. I think it's mm-hmm. there's a void on the political spectrum. Everybody's fighting over, you know, the scraps in the centre or else moving sharply to the right like the Conservatives. I think that the base of the NDP is very frustrated and rightly so. Uh, I think that there are, you know, the 8 million Canadians who didn't vote in the last election feel that they have no stake and really deals with the interests and demands of the elite. And we as a country are not confronting the reality that the core cause of the climate emergency is this inhumane, uh, cruel, frankly, and destructive economic system that we call capitalism. And if we don't come to grips with that, I don't think we're going to solve the climate emergency. Uh, And I don't really hear anybody, uh, you know, in parliament making the case, which I think Naomi Klein has made so eloquently, that this is really about the the economic system and and its fatal flaws.
0: So when it, co- when it comes to actually trying to build this party up, so right now the Green Party holds uh, three seats in the House of Commons. Um, they've struggled, of course, with, with trying to grow the party and, and trying to find their place in the discussion. And, and honestly, tr- being taken seriously by the media, of course, is a huge issue as well. How do you address all of that? Like, How do you help to grow the party, but also how do you actually become a part of the conversation and not get sidelined like the Green Party has in the past?
1: Well, first of all, I, I've, it, it, when it comes to the mainstream media, I have been part of the conversation. I was uh, named by uh, uh, Canadian uh, Lawyer Magazine one of the 25 most influential lawyers in Canada, and one of the, by Canadian Business Magazine is one of the 50 most influential persons in Canadian business. Not because of work I was doing for the corporate community, but because of the cases that I was pursuing against the corporate community. You know, I've been very widely quoted, quoted in the financial press, not just domestically but internationally. So, I think I'm unusual for uh, a Green Party leadership candidate because I do have a presence in the establishment media. They know who I am, they know what my record is. It's very hard for them to portray me as somebody who doesn't understand the economic system and the realities of uh, political life. Uh, but ultimately, in terms of growing the party, uh, I think we have to be far bolder than we have been. You know, in the last election, we had tremendously favorable circumstances. Trudeau was scandalized, uh, the NDP was in dis- disarray and underfinanced. Andrew Shear, frankly, was a bit of a buffoon and public consciousness about the climate crisis. Our signature issue was at historic highs. And yet we came away with one percent of the seats, roughly. Mm-hmm. And that's not a that's not a prescription for changing the course of our country. Uh, we are going to have to do something very, very different if we want to grow this party and continuing to adopt these milk toast slogans like, you know, neither left nor right, but forward. Yeah. that just going to cut it. I think we have to be unapologetic, unapologetically progressive and left wing.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. And so let's get into some of the, the issues now. Uh, the Green Party, uh, in some ways, has been um, criticized as being eco-capitalist, or at least viewed that way in some sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see that as a problem? Do you want to go towards a more you know eco-socialist direction? How do you view the Green Party's ability to uh, t- to grow while also addressing these major issues and, and being bold? How should they uh, they do that?
1: Well, I I identify as an eco-socialist, and I'm not shy about saying so. I don't run away from the S-word like the NDP did under, I believe it was Jack Layton.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Our party has never, at least in the last 15 years, uh, embraced the concept of socialism or eco-socialism. So I want to be very clear about that. Um, I don't think that the majority of the party's members find that problematic because polling indicates otherwise. There was a poll done by Forum Research last year which asked Canadians about their attitudes towards socialism. 58% of Canadians overall said they had a positive view of socialism. In the Green Party, it was 69%. And uh, something in the range of 60% had a negative view of capitalism. Uh, And even in the Liberal Party, there was 74% had a positive view of socialism, although less than the majority had a negative view of capitalism. So there is a lot of sympathy and comfort with the concept of socialism. It is, however, true that within the Green Party, there is a vocal and vigorous opposition to any kind of socialist program coming from persons you could fairly describe as eco-capitalists. And I do think they have a bit of an outsized role in the leadership of the party. I think that's true, by the way, of all the parties. I think the NDP leadership doesn't reflect the base. Mm -hmm. It's well Mm -hmm. to the right of the base. I think that's true of the Liberal Party. It's not unique to our party. But that is a resistance that's going to have to be overcome. Uh, I'm aware it's there. And I think the way to overcome it is just to be true to my principles and speak to people's hearts and minds uh, and uh, their votes will follow.
0: What do you see as the major barrier to uh, what you just described? Like, why are the bases of, of, you know, the, the NDP and the Greens especially, why are they so different then from what the platform or the leadership fights for? What, what is the main barrier to that change from happening? Why aren't these parties actually... Uh, in this moment in time, controlled by what the the base of the parties and and what the people in general actually want?
1: I I think it's, look, one of the most uh, profound experiences I had uh, in my life was reading Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. Uh, A friend friend of mine who's now the chair of my strategy committee uh, recommended to me in 2006 that I read that book. And I, I just was just overwhelmed with a sense of indignation when I put it down because I realized I had been lied to. Mm. And the media are, the corporate media in this country, which I've dealt with extensively, are deceiving the public about uh, many things, including you know majority views about things like socialism, wealth redistribution, uh, fundamental changes to our, uh, our the, 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 the laws and regulations protecting uh, workers in our society. They've convinced us, first of all, uh, to misunderstand the very nature of who we are. They want us to believe that we are rational maximizers of our self-interest, that we are more interested in our own aggrandizement and enrichment than we are in the collective good, that we are inherently competitive, uh, that the public doesn't have an appetite for a revolutionary radical program. And it's just not true. Uh, And so when you get to discussions about who's gonna lead the party, there are all these misconceptions which have been fed by the corporate media quite consciously and uh, deliberately and very effectively about what can and cannot work in Canadian politics. Mm -hmm. And so you end up and also there's the role of money in politics, you know, even though we're not as bad as the United States, not nearly as bad. Still, we have these donation limits, uh, and a set of uh, election financing rules that allow the affluent to have a disproportionate say on who actually gets to lead these parties at the end of the day. So if you look in the, the fundraising numbers that just came out, for example, we just received them two hours ago for the leadership contest. Uh, and by the way, we're very happy with them. Out of the eight candidates who remain in the race, we are in second place. Nice. Uh, we had, we had, uh, we more than doubled our fundraising in August over the prior five months. Uh, we're still significantly by, behind uh, enemy Paul, but we actually ran neck and neck with, with enemy in fundraising. And you look at the average donation size, which is something that I just uh, bore down into before I got on this call, the centrist candidates, uh, David Murner, who just came over to the Green Party last year from the Liberals after being for, with the Liberals for 30 years. Glenn Murray, who was the Environment and Transport Minister in Ontario under McGuinty and Wynne, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, another centrist candidate, have much higher average donation uh, numbers than we do. Well above uh, mm-hmm. the numbers that we mm-hmm. have. They're, and, and still have much less money in the bank than we do. Uh, so we are attracting people uh, who are not affluent by and large And we're attracting them in much larger numbers than they are. I mean, we have more than, I think we have almost three times as many donors as Glenn Murray and well over three times as many donors as uh, David Murner. So our campaign is not appealing to the affluent. I mean, if you want to get into our platform, it'll become apparent pretty quickly why that's the case. (laughs) We have a very, very strong, bold uh, redistributive platform. Um, But the numbers uh, of the number of donors and the overall result shows that we are really resonating with the public. Uh, and that uh, we ultimately, I think, are going to be able to overcome the role of uh, big money in politics in this campaign. I'm certainly hopeful. I think we're in a great position to do that.
0: And that also reflects real-world support as well, because it, if your donation limit is, is smaller and you have more money, that means there are more people that are just supporting your your, your candidacy and, and want to see you as the leader. And, and that would, I think, apply as well uh, if you became leader. But let's yeah. get to... Um, so foreign policy is one issue where there is such a narrow discussion in canada on foreign policy and i'm so glad that you have a very different vision and very different um uh, education on on that so tell me how you differ in terms of your view i know there are many different foreign policy issues but uh, i guess an overview on on how you differ from where the party has been traditionally and also just where the the conversation in canada is on foreign policy and and how you differ there
1: so I start from the premise that human rights and international law are of universal application and that all victims are equal, regardless of their ethnicity, nationality or religion, and all oppressors are equally accountable. Uh, And what you see in Canada's foreign policy, you can simply understand Canada's foreign policy very clearly by applying the following principle. If a state or a regime is deemed by the US government to be an ally in its project of global hegemony, then it gets a free pass when it comes to international law and human rights. If, however, it is deemed to be resistant to the American government's project of global hegemony, then it is held to the highest standard imaginable of compliance with human rights and international law. And Canada simply, by and large, mimics this approach. We, to be perfectly blunt about it in the post-World War II period, have been little more than a vassal of the United States government on the international stage. And I believe that Martin Luther King was 100% correct when he said shortly before his assassination that the U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And if you look at the landscape of civilian casualties in the post-World War II period, no state, in my opinion, is as culpable as that of the U.S. government. What it did to Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, the destruction of Iraq, its participation in the destruction of Libya, its 20-year-long occupation of Afghanistan, a brutal exercise, the democratically elected governments it overthrew. For example, nobody talks about it, but in the 50s, the US and British governments overthrew a democratically elected Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammed Mossadegh. They supported a military dictatorship in Brazil. They undermined the government of Salvador Allende. I could go on and on and on. And so we as a country have slavishly followed this fundamentally inhumane and destabilizing foreign policy. And I wanna see Canada become a leader in developing an alliance of non-belligerent states and adopting a truly principled foreign policy, one that will actually persuade states to support us when we make a bid for the UN Security Council, but instead we've lost two successive bids because I think our international credibility has been shredded. So uh, under under my leadership, if I'm accorded the, the privilege of being the leader of the Green Party, you will see a very, very different approach to foreign policy, one that is not like that of any leader of any political party in parliament in the last 30 years,
0: yeah. And at the very, at the very least, it would also just have there would be an actual discussion, an actual debate around many of these issues, where you've seen uh, practically every party, if not every party, just fall in line with what the this the status quo, uh, you know, line has been when it comes to many of these issues, be it Israel-Palestine, um, be it uh, Venezuela, Bolivia. I mean, there's been a, a even just recently a very Uh, narrow approach to how we view these foreign policy issues and, of course, the media not doing its job and actually questioning the the status quo when it comes to all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, when was the last time you heard it? Just a simple question. Heard somebody stand up in Parliament and ask whether we should be a member of NATO. I mean, you can't even have a debate in this country about whether we should be a member of NATO. It's like universal agreement in the political elites that we should be. I want us to get out of NATO. And at a minimum, we should be having a debate about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, our support for Israel, you mentioned that. We we readily acknowledge that the settlements are a violation of the Fort Geneva Convention, that the annexation of East Jerusalem violates the Fort Geneva Convention, and how do we respond? By deepening our ties economically, militarily, and politically to this country. And I think, uh, I think the gig is up. I think people understand the hypocrisy of our foreign policy. And I believe that there is tremendous potential to bring Progressive voters under the Green Party banner by pursuing a principled and outspoken uh, foreign policy.
0: Now let's get to something a little more uh, uh, domestic, policing. So there is, uh, I mean, clearly uh, we've seen over the past you know six months, especially more of a focus on on policing and systemic racism, and finally at least the beginnings of a discussion around many of these issues. What is your approach to uh, to criminal justice, and 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 what would you do as as leader?
1: Well, I'm calling for defunding the RCMP by 50%. I want to see those funds reallocated to what uh, constitute the root causes of behaviors we've uh, characterized as criminal. What are the root causes? Fundamentally, social injustice, you know, poverty, homelessness, substance abuse, mental health issues that are not being adequately treated uh, by our health care systems, uh, domestic abuse. These are what cause people generally, not always, but generally, to engage in behaviors which we prescribe through the criminal laws. And what we should be doing is dealing with the root causes rather than uh, employing an increasingly militarized national and provincial and municipal police forces to deal in sometimes brutal and racist ways with the symptoms of social injustice, because that's what they do. They're dealing with the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So So that's number one. Number two, we have an enormous access uh, access to justice crisis in this country. I saw this day after day in the courts where people were entering the court system unrepresented by capable counsel. And frankly, the reason why that's the case is because lawyers make too much money. They charge too much money. So I'm calling for taxing the legal profession and corporate litigants to create a very robust access to justice fund, which will uh, enable Canadians who can't afford legal counsel to be represented. If you don't have legal counsel, then equality is just a legal theory. It's not a reality. I think that our our judiciary needs to reflect the ethnic and religious and gender diversity of our country. It doesn't. And I think that the judges who sit on the benches, I've never once, never once in my career as a lawyer met a radically left wing judge in this country. They are all people who ideologically are aligned with the leadership of the liberal or conservative party in my experience, because the, the prime minister is choosing who gets to sit on the bench. This should be taken out of the hands of the political elites and put into the hands of the people judge selection. Uh, and, and and finally, we need to be much more transparent about things like, you know, which racialized groups are being targeted with police violence. There's almost no data of any meaningful sort that's available in that regard. So we have to make it very clear who the culprits are and which communities are being primarily victimized by police brutality. Uh, and those are just some of the things I mean, you know, I, one other thing I should mention is that I feel very strongly that imprisonment should be a last resort that the fundamental objective of the criminal justice system should be rehabilitation, not punishment. And we should be putting people in prison for prolonged periods of time, only in the most extreme cases. We should be getting rid of mand- mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, and, and really the whole focus should be upon developing an individualized rehabilitation plan for every person who enters the correctional system.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's it's amazing to me there are more politicians like you. I mean you 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 grasp these issues in a way that very few people uh in public life do and and you're able to really articulate them in a way that I think is uh, able to speak to people and even if people aren't aware of much of what you're talking about that you're able to communicate in a way that I think teaches a lot of people and I think that's always the part of a politician's job that gets lost is that it isn't just about, you know, leading a party and winning. It's about actually informing the community and informing people about what should be done and and how um and how we should view society and, and view human rights and and uh and your approach I think is fantastic. We've uh two more issues here that I, I want to hit on. I I don't think we got too deep into um labor policy. So you said you're an eco socialist, but what is your approach to say like a, a wealth tax or your approach to to labor rights and and how would you view uh, those issues differently than, than what's been done in the past?
1: These are subjects that are very dear to my heart. Uh, I don't think we should have billionaires in this country. I don't get that. You know, why do we allow people to accumulate? Ten people in this country control, last time I checked, $65 billion of wealth. And we have tens of thousands of people living in the streets and millions, many of them children, living in poverty. One of the world's wealthiest countries. That's outrageous. It's obscene. I want to tax billionaires out of existence. And so I proposed a wealth cap, uh, of, and it's quite high arguably it should be much lower, of $500 million, and every dollar of gain above that limit would be taxed at a rate of 100%. That's a wealth tax, not mm-hmm. this cute little 1% thing that Jagmeet Singh is bragging about, which is only going to very modestly slow the rate at which extreme wealth is accumulated.
0: And they still fight him on that, by the way. Like they, <laughs> it, that, That's the thing with the, the debate in this country is so crazy where you can't even mention wealth tax, even if it's a little tiny thing, but anyways. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, and that's just really the beginning. I mean, we need to have a higher top marginal tax rate. It was for much of the post-World War II period nexus excess of 90% in Canada and the United States. So I'm calling for one that's 75%. Uh, we don't have an estate tax in this country. We're the only G7 country that doesn't have an estate tax. So I'm calling for that. Uh, we lose $75 billion a year, the federal government, to giving preferential tax treatment to investment income. Who has money to invest? The, the affluent do. You know, working Canadians by and large don't have significant funds to invest. They don't get to benefit from this preferential treatment. I think we should eliminate it almost entirely and use that money to provide support to the most vulnerable members of our society. On workers' rights, you know, very quickly, I want to see a, a, a cap on the spread between executive and worker compensation. I'm proposing one of 10 to 1. Mandatory representation of workers on the boards of public companies, which has been the case in Germany for some time. and workers' claims being prioritized in corporate insolvencies so their pensions don't get wiped out, you know, when a company fails and all the scraps are given to the banks and the hedge funds. Uh, So when my workers' rights platform came out, Sid Ryan, who is, uh, as you probably know, a major labour leader in this country, was the former president of the Ontario Federation of Labour, he endorsed me, he endorsed my platform and said he's not seen anything like this from the federal NDP or any provincial NDP in his lifetime. And this is somebody who was an NDP candidate and who almost ran to be the leader of the NDP. So mm. I think that that's where the real electoral uh, promise lies, is, is supporting and invigorating and motivating the millions of working Canadians who have been left behind in this era of neoliberalism and global
0: trade. Absolutely. Now, um, the uh, one last issue here, I, I, want, I have to touch on, of course, environmental policy. Uh, the Green Party traditionally has been looked at as you know the environment party um mm-hmm. but clearly you know a, a leadership like yours I, I think it it shows you there's very uh, or it shows us there's very um you have depth in, in terms of what your platform is a lot more than any other you know uh leader of any major party right now uh so what is your approach to environmental policy and what do you think you know liberals and conservatives have done wrong uh, up to this point and i'm sure there's a lot <laughs> but what are your yeah. thoughts on all that
1: well, they put, a, they put the, their faith in market-based mechanisms, and even those they've used very meekly. Uh, so the liberals have this pathetic carbon tax and they think that that's going to do the job. It's not. We actually have to put hard constraints on uh, the growth of the fossil fuels industry. So I think we should have an absolute ban on new oil and gas exploration. We should be banning completely new oil and gas infrastructure. We should be having hard caps on greenhouse gas emissions declining year after year to the point where we have actually have a zero, or at least a carbon neutral economy by 2030, not 2050. By 2030,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we can do this, but it's going to require massive, massive government investment, and we have that ability if we were to do what I proposed, which is you know raise 75 billion by eliminating preferential treatment for investment income, 50% reduction in military spending. That's something else I've called for, uh, you know, uh, increasing the top marginal tax rate and using the Bank of Canada to actually create the currency that we need to fund a Green New Deal, we can do all of these things. We can impose these constraints on the fossil fuels industry while rapidly transitioning to a truly renewable energy economy. It's going to take political will of an unprecedented kind, but the resources are there and it can be done. And all that is lacking in you know, the, the, the political elites in this country is a real commitment to solving this emergency.
0: So wrapping it up here, uh, what is the state of the, the leadership race right now? Um, what are the deadlines that people should be aware of, uh, aware of when it comes to you know supporting you? And, of course, also give us your website and, and social media uh, as well.
1: Thank you, David. Uh, so please do go and visit our website, especially the platform section. You can learn a lot more about uh, this uh, wonderful platform we put forward. And by the way, this is a group effort. I have people, crazy, uh, incredible people on my platform committee like uh, Radhika Desai, who's a leftist political economist from the University of Manitoba, Alan Freeman, who was an economic advisor to the mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, Uh, tremendous people. And we've got a great platform. So check it out on teamdimitri.ca. The most important date, if you are supportive of the, the, the program I've been talking about, is September 3rd, two days from now. Please become a member of the Green Party of Canada if you want to support this campaign. It's 10 bucks. You can go to my website, TeamDimitri.ca, hit the donate button, it'll take you straight to the membership page. And if you are a permanent resident or a citizen and you're at least 14 years of age, you can sign up and be eligible to vote. So I can't stress enough the need for supportive progressives to get together and have their voice heard in this contest. It's gonna take place at the end of September. It's entirely online, it's a ranked ballot. Uh, but if you join the party, uh, you in the next two days, you'll be in a position to participate.
0: Dimitri Lascaris, thank you for joining me. I am polling for you in this race. I am supporting you. Uh, Support him. I'll have all those links below the video as well. Uh, Once again, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. Much appreciated.